Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Harvest Baptist Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. And as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior today, as we do each and every Sunday, as we will do next Sunday as well, uh, we will have one service next Sunday at 10 a.m. And uh, pray that you guys will be here. Uh, we have Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve as we do every year, and that'll be at 5 o'clock here as well. No Sunday school next Sunday, but we will come. We will hear the proclamation of God's word. We will sing praises to our risen Savior. And this morning, as you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12, I'll be reading today from verses 9 through 13. And this is the third uh, uh, sermon in this mini-series, Being a Roman 12 Christian. What do we mean by being a Romans 12 Christian? Well, I asked you for homework a while back to read uh, chapters 1 through 11. And it's important that we understand and, and read those and have a grasp of the doctrine uh, that God has given us uh, through Paul and his epistle to the, to the Romans. And um, I was reminded this week, my, my, my son Jesse called me. He's in Sacramento. He's a captain in, in the Air Force out there. And uh, he called me and he said, Dad, he said, I... He said, uh, what would you think if, if I told you that Amanda, I came home from work, and Amanda came up to me and said, Jesse, this has been a long, long and tough day. Would you mind taking care of the boys for me right now? And I responded to Amanda and said, is this a divorce issue? And Amanda would say, what do you mean a divorce issue? Well, is this a divorce issue? Will you divorce me if I don't take care of the kids? And Amanda said, well, of course not. He says, okay, I choose not to do it. So a little bit later in the day, he said, Dad, what would you think of me if Amanda came to me at the, you know, we, we uh, time to fix dinner and said, hey, could you, could you help me in here in the kitchen and uh, help me do it? Is this a divorce issue? And Amanda's like, what? What are you talking about? No, it's not a divorce issue. Well, I choose not to do it. And finally, as the, as the, and I'm getting aggravated with my son about now, and, uh, and right there at the last, he says, and what, would, what would you think, Dad, if... If she's getting ready to put the kids to bed and she said, I need you to give them a bath, and she asked me the same question. Is this a divorce issue? He asked me this. Uh, I had asked her the same question. And she said, of course not. It's not a divorce issue. Well, I choose not to do it. And I'm going, he said, what do you think of that, Dad? I said, well, me and you are going to have a talk because that's surely not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. He said, it's just an illustration, Dad. He said, but don't we do that to God all the time? Don't we ask God, is this a salvation issue? When God tells us to be obedient about something, do we not say that very thing? Do we not say, well, God, you saved me. Uh, do you really want me to serve? No, nah, no. Nah. Is it a salvation issue? No, nah, no, nah, I don't need to do that. You mean I, I should be in fellowship with fellow believers on Sunday? Is it a salvation issue if I'm not there? No, it's not a salvation issue. Well, nah, I just choose not to do that. It sounds silly when it comes to a spouse, but it's not so silly when we do it every day to the Lord. And one of the things that you'll realize that being a Romans 12 Christian helps prevent that from happening. If you really grasp what Paul is trying to get at here in, in those first two sermons I preached on, we talked about transformation. We talked about how as a Christian that we're not to be conformed to this world any longer. We're not to, to think like the world does. We are different than the world. And then, we're told, and then, and then uh, two weeks ago I talked about how by the grace Paul started off by saying it's by the grace that I even get to speak to you that I'm an apostle, that I can preach to you the truth. And by God's grace, he called each one of you to be a believer that is a follower of Christ. And by grace, he's given each one of you a gift to serve the body, not yourself. 
And so we've seen Paul lay this groundwork, chapters 1 through 11, to tell us why through the theology and doctrine of our faith. And then this morning, as, as these commands that we see from verses 9 through 21 are built on the foundational verses of 1 and 2. Paul is showing us the practical outworking of those important two verses. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. You see, he's, he's setting that up for us to get to the meat of, of this chapter here. And Paul is showing us the, the practical outworking of those important two verses. At the heart of everything are the mercies of God. If you have not experienced God's mercy in Christ, as Paul spelled out in chapters 1 through 11, you cannot even begin to apply Romans 12, 9 through 21. It has no application in your life. This, this sermon is for believers. This message is for believers. If you belong to Christ, pay attention. If you don't belong to Christ, you need to pay attention. Because right now, I'm going to tell you that you must be born again. So I go no further in this sermon without telling you the good news of that gospel. We sang about it this morning. You know, when Sunday is coming up. And we happen to be celebrating Christmas on this Sunday. And believe it or not, there will be churches in our region that will shut their doors on Sunday. I know it's uh, uh, Scott Annual was here last week. And on a Twitter feed that uh, Virgil Walker from G3 Ministries put out there, and he was basically saying that you should forgo everything else if it gets in the way of you worshiping on a Sunday. And uh, he got all kinds of pushback. Called him a legalist and everything else. And Scott Annual got on there. You guys heard him last week uh, as he came. Dr. Annual just basically said a pastor is without excuse not to have his doors open on Sunday. Without excuse. Do you realize in this country it was illegal to celebrate Christmas during the pilgrims? Do you realize that? In, in, in the 1700s, in the late 1600s, 1700s, when the pilgrims came over here for, for religious freedom to express their beliefs in God, you know why they said it? Because it has become a secular, decadent holiday. That's what the Puritans said. And so for a church to shut its doors basically is agreeing with a secular world. So yes, celebrate with your family. Yes, get up and open presents. Yes, have dinner. Do whatever you want, but don't forget that we are Christians. And every Sunday we worship the risen Savior. That's what we do. When Mary worshipped, the very first worship service was when Mary fell to her knees and worshiped her risen savior our risen king and our lord it's all about him and how how why is that so important for us as christians we who have been born again we have been washed with the blood of christ we have recognized that we were sinful men and women that we were going through life blind and slaves to sin and not even realizing it believing the lie of the of the world saying that that eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you die and there's no no, 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 nothing happens after us. You're, you're worm food. You're, 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 nothing happens to you at all. Or you may be reincarnated a thousand different times until you reach nirvana state. But God says to you and I that we're sinners in need of a Savior. He says that 
you were born in sin, Mark Wells. And without my grace that I've given you the faith to believe, that grace that Paul talks about in the first verses of chapter 12 and down around 5 and 6 when he's talking about the grace that God gives to each one of us to believe in him. And on that day, you accepted Christ as Savior. You acknowledged your sin before a holy God, knew that you could not be right with him and acknowledged Jesus as Savior. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. To be born again, this passage today is for all of us who put your faith and trust in Christ. If you do not know him today, I, I beg you, beg you that you seek God in his face. Seek him with your heart. And God says those who seek him will find him. And so now that we're born again believers, we who have gathered here with anticipation of hearing from God's word, would you stand with me? as we honor the preaching of God's word, as, as we read his word out loud and hear the voice of God through a mere man who is speaking the words that were written by Paul, the apostle, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, these are the words of the Lord. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, preserving in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and pursuing hospitality. Father, we come, mere men and mere women, before your throne this morning. And Father, I pray from the proclamation of your word, from the songs that we have sung and the praises we have lifted up, from the prayers that we're uttered this morning, Father, for you to be glorified in this service. Pray for your will to be done in your people's lives. I pray, Father, that each one of us, just as I was convicted in this sermon, how I fall short in these areas that I will be proclaiming from your word this morning. Help us, Father, to evaluate our own lives. Not the person next to us, not our spouses, not our children, but ourselves, Lord. May we become faithful sons and daughters. I ask this in the precious name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So this morning, as we look at this, you know, I, I planned on preaching uh, through the rest of Romans, uh, and, and I figured that you all didn't want to be here for three hours on a Sunday. So, so I broke this into two sermons, uh, the, 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 the rest of the chapter. But today, we're going to focus on, so this is part one, what makes Christian love different? What makes Christian love different? What makes it different than the world? And so in these verses 9 through 13, we're going to look at that this morning. And we're going to see that Paul teaches us five lessons on Christian brotherly love. Five lessons. We're going to see one on hypocrisy, on devotion, on diligence, on hope, and hospitality. Verse 9, hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. So what comes to mind, I asked you this morning, what comes to mind when you think of hypocrisy? What, what, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Have you ever been called a hypocrite as a Christian? I know I have been called a hypocrite as a Christian, uh, and rightly so, because my actions were dictating, even though that's not the correct interpretation for a hypocrite. Matter of fact, Webster defines uh, hypocrisy as a feigning to be what one is not or to believe what one does not so in other words it's somebody who's standing up in a pulpit on sunday morning who's not a christian who's a wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't believe anything he's saying to the to the congregation and he's claiming to be a christian he's not really trying to deceive the faithful 
That's, that's a hypocrite. But it has broadened to include the meaning of behavior that con contradicts what one claims to believe or feel. So if I tell you that, I, that as a Christian and, and that, I, that I love Jesus but act like the fool when I'm outside of here and not love people and, and, don't, and repay evil for evil and do all kinds of act like the world does, then I'm being a hypocrite. I'm not living what I believe. See, biblical love is required. It's a command. We, mu we must do it without hypocrisy. We must mean what we say. Say what we mean. I used to tell my kids all the time, just speak the truth. I don't care. Just tell me. Don't, you don't, just tell me what it is. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And see, to live a transformed life, we must love others sincerely. We must love them sincerely without hypocrisy. New Testament love is, is not a feeling that comes over us when we're with somebody of the opposite sex. It's, 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 it's just, that's not what it is. That's not biblical love. And we all remember that. Men, women, you, you, husbands and wives here, uh, you who have been in love, you remember when, when those butterflies were going around and you, and you couldn't wait to talk to the person on the telephone and the one thing with a cord on it. Only had two phones in the whole house and you had to sneak your time away, sneak in your parents' bedroom and talk on the phone and hopefully you didn't talk too long and they'd come in here screaming at you, somebody's been trying to call. I remember those butterflies when I, when I first met my wife and, and Kathy. We were just kids and we met and, and I remember those days. But that love matures. It doesn't, you don't keep that butterfly feeling, that, 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 that feeling that we have. You see... The New Testament love we're talking about here is not romantic love. It's not romantic love. The New Testament love is not that. The Greek word for romantic love is eros, where we get the word erotic from. And, and it describes passion and lust and pleasure. It, it's, it's an appreciation for one's physical being or, or beauty, and it's driven by attraction and sexual longing. That's, that's this eros that the world looks at. And it, it describes even our love when we first, it describes desire and it's most similar to what we think of as a romantic, passionate love between uh, couples in the early stages of courtship. God gives us that. that. That's pleasurable. I'm not denying that that's a feeling, but this is much more than that. Because all of us realize, we who have been married longer than uh, a year or two, we, we understand that the love matures. And I pray that your love matures like my wife and I's love has. We've had bad times in our marriage. But it's because of our love for Christ and putting each other before ourselves that our marriage has survived. And now we can look back and we see, see that love has grown within us. And my love for her is greater than I ever thought possible. And it's because I love my Lord more. And I comprehend that love more because I'm, I'm loving her with, with a heart that God has given me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And understand it's more than physical. It's more than, than butterflies. It's more than what she does for me. It's what, what God has done through me to lead my wife. Biblical love is so different than the world. Biblical love is commanded to be obeyed. It's a commandment. It's not a request. It's not God saying, Wait, hey, Mark, when you feel like it, I want you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I, 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 want, you, I want you to love all the believers. I want you to love the members of, of Grace Harvest Baptist Church. 
No, it's a command. The Lord Jesus made this explicit in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, 34, for those of you taking notes, John chapter 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is agape love. This is, this is sacrificial love. We know how Jesus loved us. He died for us. And Jesus says, hey, Mark, I died for you. I saved you. And now I'm giving you a new command. And that command is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that I love you. Well, Pastor, does that mean I got to like them? Yes. I don't know how many times I heard people say, well, Bible commands me to love them, but I don't have to like them. What? Get over yourself. You're not going to have that intimate relationship with everybody that's a believer. I understand that. That we're only can, we can only have so many people that we're that close to. I get that. But I can love all Christians. I can love all my fellow believers in Christ. I'm going to spend eternity. You're going to spend eternity with me. We're going to spend eternity with one another as we worship our Lord. Anybody who's ever a believer who's died or will die, who, who knows Christ, we will all be one together. And yet there will be some in here in this very room who won't talk to somebody on the other side of the room. Because they don't like each other. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. They, they insulted me. Yeah, I understand. I understand that we get hurt. I also understand that God says, forgive them. I also understand that God commands me. He doesn't give me an option. I don't have a right to sit back and complain and whine. You know, he talked about that earlier in Romans 12, didn't he? Don't think too highly of myself. That's when I get in trouble, when I start thinking too much of myself, and God reminds me that you're nothing, Mark. Apart from me, you're nothing. You can't do anything without me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him bear much fruit. Without me, what? You can do nothing. Nothing. It's, it's, we don't like to think of that, but it's God who works through us. You see, John 13, 34 is agape love. It's the, es the essence of agape love is goodwill, benevolence, and willful delight in the object of my love. It, I, I want... You to delight. I want you to grow in Christ. That is my objective as your shepherd, your under-shepherd. The elders desires to see you as a body of believers grow in your love for one another. You grow in your love for Christ. Grow in your service. Grow in your evangelism. All of that is, 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 is I can only do that if I want the best for you. And I'm not jealous of you. Agape is not used in the New Testament to refer to romantic or sexual love at all, nor does it refer to uh, the friendship that we'll be talking about in a little while, the brotherly love, the, word, the Greek word we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. That's not what we're talking about here specifically. This agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and the act of the will. I will love. I will choose to love when the flesh says no. The flesh says you've been hurt. The flesh says you have, they have insulted you. And, and God is saying, forgive and love them. Love them. We're to, we're to forgive our enemies. Show them good. How much more should we do that to the body of Christ? Agape love is beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you are familiar with it. I won't read it today. If you're not, I would encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13. It... it uh, I read it a lot of times at weddings, and it's applicable to weddings, but folks, it's written for believers. 
It's written to, so brothers and sisters would treat each other that way. That's, that's what it's done for. Paul is saying to, uh, to us that, that love doesn't hold a record of wrong. That's great for marriage, but it's also great for brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the supreme demonstration of Jesus' love was when he went to that cross and he bore God's wrath on our behalf. Remember, God said that you and I were sinners in need, in, in, uh, destined to hell. We couldn't pay what was required to pay to, to appease God's anger against our sin. And in love, he sent his son to take your my place. In love, he hung his son on a cross. In love, he let his son be mocked and hung naked on a tree. In his love, he let his son be beat. In love, he let his son be stabbed. In love, he let his son's blood be shed for us. And in love, he rose him from the dead. And in love, he called us to be his. And so we are Christians and we're to love like that. You, you should be proud of the name Christian. You should be you should wear that as a badge of honor to be identified with Christ. We are, we are His and we are His children. And see, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can choose to sacrifice our selfish interest on the behalf of others. To love without hypocrisy, we are to abhor what is evil, Paul goes on the right. He says you are to abhor what is evil. That, that's, that's a word you think you'd, you'd see in some Shakespeare novel or play, right? Abhor what is evil. What, what does he mean? What, what does it mean to abhor what is evil? First of all, I want to tell you, biblical love is discerning. Biblical love is discerning. We don't love evil. We don't love evil. It never endorses, aligns itself, or encourages others' attitudes or behavior that are evil. That's what a Christian never does. You may sin, and we all sin, and we all do it. But one thing I can tell between a believer and a non-believer is when a, when a non-believer makes fun of their sin. And they brag on their sin. See, a Christian won't do that. Why? Because a Christian's ashamed of their sin. It's convicting. When we do something wrong, the Holy Spirit says, uh, what are you doing? Do you realize you're sinning? And you were bought with a price mark? And, and so we, we don't align ourselves with, with things that are evil. Not at all. Rather, biblical love embraces what is good in God's sight. His good, acceptable, and perfect will. Back to Romans 12, verse 2. Back to His good and perfect and acceptable will. Paul doesn't just say to avoid evil, but to abhor it. And we are to detest it. We are to detest evil. We are to hate it. See, the original Greek has the meaning of shrinking back in horror from evil. That's what it means. To shrink back. You're, 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 so, you're so shocked by it that we back away from it. But do we? Do we do that? Do, do we abhor evil? I, I, I can remember when, I, uh, when Kathy and I were, were dating back in the 70s and, I, and the slasher films came out. The first one was Friday the 13th. And I, I took my fiance to that. And we're sitting there watching that movie. And Kathy's got her eyes closed almost the whole time. And she goes, what's wrong with you? There are sick people that make that movie. And that's nothing compared to what they make today. Nothing. But my wife was more sensitive to evil than I was. I, I, it was pretty cool. 
Tell you what, when we laugh, when we enjoy evil, we're not abhorring it. We're not hating what God hates. Uh, this is tough stuff, guys. This is, this, this is, if you want to be a mature Christian in the faith, Paul just kind of punches us between the eyes and convicts us of things that we're not doing. Since God hates sin, he does hate it, right? We know that because he knows what it does to us. To be indifferent towards sin is to be indifferent towards God. When we're indifferent towards sin, we're indifferent towards God. We're saying, is this a salvation issue? Is this a salvation issue, God? Is it, I'm not going to lose my salvation if I watch this or if I listen to this or I do this, is it? No, we, it's not, but we should have a heart and a desire to run away from evil. And the problem is, too many Christians, we run towards it. I want you to, you know, obviously to laugh at evil or to be entertained by evil, whether in person or in a movie or TV screen, is not abhorring evil. It's not shrinking back from it. We're exposing ourselves to it. We have become, we're that frog in that pot of water, especially my generation. Because we, we you know, when I was a kid, you went to movies and the, there were two ratings back in the 60s. You know what they were? Family and mature. That was it. Family and mature. Our ratings came out, I think, you can look this up later, everybody go to Google me, I think 68 or 69, but before that, you didn't have to worry about it. There were no tirades of filthy language in movies. They had mature themes, it was family and mature, that was it. And then they came up with a PG, oh, man, I remember being 12 and 13, you know, I won't go see an R-rated movie. Why? That just an enticement of evil. I didn't look at it as evil, I looked at it as like, man, that's what grown-ups do. You've got to be 18 to go see this. We don't run from evil. We should. Parents, you have an obligation to protect your children, no matter what they say. These phones that we have access to. It, it, I remember it was a joke. When we were younger, they called the TV the devil box. We used to, I used to laugh at people, you fundamentals wacko, you know. Just think what your children get exposed to when they can grab a phone that's unlocked and no safeguards on it. It's horrible. What, what, what I would have to do as a teenage boy if I wanted to see pornography was go down to a Utotem store on Jeff Davis Highway, get somebody to buy it for us. Some guy you offer him a pack of cigarettes or a six-pack of beer, you go in there and get it, and he'd give you a dirty magazine, which isn't a dirty magazine anymore. You see how we've advanced and we've come so desensitized to it that we don't, we're not even shocked by evil anymore. And yet scripture tells us, God tells you and I, we're to hate what is evil. And ask yourself, what entertains you? Is what you watch the very thing that God hates? What you read, is it the very thing that God hates? Is what you do the very thing that God saved you from? If we abhor what is evil, then we cling to what is good. I, I love this. I love what Paul says. Cast out the evil, cling to what is good. Cast out the evil and cling to what is good. The verb cling to literally means to be glued to it. Be glued to what is good and distance yourself from evil. I, I, I envisioned this when I was writing a sermon. It's like, who wants to be around a skunk when he's, when, or a dead one on the road or anywhere near one of your critters? Nobody wants to be around hey, Get away. Get away. Get away. We should treat sin like that. 
Don't you wish you could treat sin like it was a nasty old skunk? Enjoy what is good. In Philippians 4.8, Paul instructs us what that good is. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, what is honorable, whatever is Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Fill your mind and, and, and with things of God that please Him. I'm, I'm not saying that you, that you wake up in the morning and you have an open of the book and read for three hours and then, then pray for another three hours, go to work. I'm not talking about living a, a life of a, of a secluded monk. What I'm ta- talking about is what is it that entertains you in your life? What is it that, that you seek for fun? There's nothing wrong with having fun. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies to do with those things, but what are those hobbies and what are those pleasures that you get out of life? Are they honoring and pleasing to God? See, as we separate ourselves from the things of the world and saturate ourselves with the Word of God, the things that are good will more and more replace the things that are evil. You talk to anybody who's ever quit smoking cigarettes, you've got to replace it with something. You just quit smoking. It's hard for people to do it cold turkey. They've got to replace it with something. Uh, back, in, back in our day was, was uh, telecephalas. He was Kojak. Stuck a lollipop in his mouth to quit smoking cigarettes. Well, folks, we're, we have the Word of God to replace what's evil in our lives. You remember when Paul said homosexuals, idolaters, drunkards, liars, thieves, gossipers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you're going, yeah, yeah, hey, that ain't me. And then what did he say? Yeah, and some were you. And that's exactly what we were. God saved us out of that. He didn't save us so we would go back to it. And we willfully put those chains of bondage back on ourselves, not for our salvation. It's not a salvation issue. It's an obedience issue. It's an obedience issue. So hypocrisy. The second is devotion. The first lesson in Christian brotherly love is hypocrisy. The second is devotion. Verse 10, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. And again, this is where, you know, the Philadelphia is, is named the, the um, city of brotherly love. That's what it refers to, which refers to the natural love among brothers and adds another word that refers to family affection. James Boyce in his commentary writes, Quote, in respect to the love of our Christian brothers and sisters, we are to be marked by a devotion that is characteristic of a loving, close-knit, and mutual supportive family. Unquote. That should be our characteristic. And, and, and Christian, don't tell me that other people don't treat you like family. Don't do that. You treat them like family no matter what they do. Don't use that as an excuse. We've all heard this growing up. I, I mean, you got to be a friend to have a friend, right? Well, as Christians, we're commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we would just do that, just think how much peace and harmony would be within the local body. Just think how much Christians could accomplish if we just love one another as we're commanded to do. See, this is a command, not a suggestion. I don't do it when I just feel like it. I don't love you just because it's a feeling or an emotion. I do it as an act of the will. God has called me to serve you. God has called me as an under-shepherd. You know, God has called me to lay down 
my life for the sheep is necessary. And, I, and that's not hyperbole. I, you know, what I did for a living kind of put me in that frame of mind from day one. I spent 29 years putting on a gun, putting on a badge, walking out the door, Kathy not knowing where I was. I go on SWAT calls, Kathy not knowing whether I'm coming back. And God's grace and mercy, she said it just the other day. She just looked at me, we're driving down the road yesterday, and she said, you know, I just thank God that, that uh, you came home every night. And it was never a question of whether, I didn't, I didn't worry about it when I went on the road. I just did my job. I answered domestics. I answered armed robbery calls. I answered burglary calls. I, I did all that stuff. And, I, and, and knowing that I may have to lay my life down. I remember being the SRO at Manchester High School. 24, 2,500 students there, right? This is uh, 96 I went there. I was coaching football at the time. Some of, some of the members of this church, I was their school resource officer. And I remember being in that building. They called me Coach Wells then. And I remember going to a training session for the SROs, pre-Columbine. So we're all sitting in there. And they're going, okay, this is the SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. You will, as an SRO in the school, you will, if there's a, if there's a shooter in your school, or if you will secure the outside of the building and you will wait for a backup before you confront the shooter. That was what police thought how to handle that, and that's obviously before Columbine. And as your pastor had a habit doing, he speaks up when he shouldn't. I said, well, I got a problem with that. What do you mean you got a problem with it? These young men and young ladies in this building, these teachers, these administrators, they're there, and I'm there to protect them. When I swore an oath, I swore to protect the Constitution of the United States and the Commonwealth of Virginia and to protect those that are in my charge. Why in the world would I run away if some bad guy is shooting my kids? Well, you And I walked out of that meeting going, I don't care what you say. That's what I'm doing. And believe me, if I didn't go, when they came back and educated us after Columbine, <clears throat> excuse me, and then what I said like three years ago? But the fact of the matter is, folks, that as Christians, especially the elders of this church, we are called to even lay our lives down. We're not hired hands. Jesus said that himself of the shepherds, under shepherds. We're, 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 to, we're to stand in that gap to help you become followers of Christ. When persecution comes, when, if the day comes and they arrest this pastor from this pulpit because I preach on something that the world says is hate speech, do you know that in the Defense of Marriage Act that was just passed, that um, the conservatives, some conservative centers were able to get into it, the stipulation that the churches would be exempt. And do you know that progressive lawmakers are upset about it and those that lobby for the LBGTQ community are upset about it because they say it's not a Christian's right to be able to refuse in this church for a man to marry a man and a woman to marry a woman. And all of us will scream up and down, well, it's in a Bill of Rights. We have freedom of, freedom of religion. Let me, can, can I get something straight with you? Man gave us the Bill of Rights. God gave us his word. And that's what my authority is based on. Now, I'm glad I live in a free country, and I'm glad I can stand here and preach. But do you think I'm going to stop preaching if, if some man says that you can't preach against sin? No. But, Mark, you better be willing to suffer the consequences. Financial, find me. Take what I have away from me. Put me in prison. I, I better be willing to, I don't want to be a hypocrite and do that, but I'm going to tell you right now, I know that your church 
If they arrested this pastor, there'd be another elder sitting here next week. And then if they arrested that pastor and put him in a cell next to me, there'd be another elder in here preaching the word of God. Because that's how important it is to stand on God's truth and not man's truth. We need to be devoted to one another. We need to be love. Our love needs to be sacrificial. Our love must not be hypocritical and it must be devoted. And thirdly, it must be diligent. We must have diligence. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not, not, uh, love not only gives one a willing spirit to serve, it's not because I have to, it's because I want to serve. It's, it's, it's not like, oh my gosh, I got to go do that again. No, not at all. It's, a, it's the desire and, 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 and a diligence to serve. It's, the, it's to be willing to serve one another without any benefit to myself. And see, fervent means to be passionate. That's the one good thing that your pastor has. I have a lot of passion, and I thank my mom's side of the family for that. You've got to be glad I'm not 100% English. I'd be standing up here like this and not even moving. I'll never forget, we were at John MacArthur Conference one time. I think, Jesse, you were there. And, uh, and there was uh, a Latino pastor there at John MacArthur's church. And John MacArthur, you know, he's up here preaching. And it was the Latino's time. He gets up there. And he says, first of all, he says, I don't stand behind the pulpit. He starts walking around. He says, when you leave this place, he said, the problem with Dr. MacArthur, he's an Anglo, and he has no passion. <laughs> he said, when you leave this place, the word of God is going to be sticking to you. <laughs> I love that. Now, I don't go that far, but I thank God for my Latin roots. But you know what? You don't have to be Italian to be passionate about God. You can be English. You could be anything you want. You can be German. You could be Russian. You could be an African. You can, you can be anything. Passion is a desire and a hunger and to, to thirst after that righteousness, to, to do what God has called us to do. Every one of us as believers should have a passion to serve one another. We should be diligent. But, but I want to I qualify that. Serving the Lord's not easy. There's a whole lot of other easy things to do. Man, I don't feel like Confession. Pastor, last Tuesday night, usually I bring Kathy up here to worship practice. And then I go in the office and I do studying. Well, your pastor was lazy. So last Tuesday, I'm looking over at Kathy and going, I didn't tell her not to go. I said, and she can't drive at night. She doesn't like driving at night. So I said, ah. I'm thinking to myself, I deserve this. It was a long weekend. I deserve to be able to rest. I mean, I was in church on Monday night. I was in church all day Sunday. I was in church all day Saturday. I was like, I had to, we had Scott Annual in my house on Friday. I just need a break. And so Michelle Clark comes over and picks my wife up, and I'm sitting there going, you worthless, good-for-nothing husband. I was lazy. I confessed that unto the Lord, and I didn't get in my car and drive and pick her up. It was already too late for that. But I... I you know, what was I thinking? We're all guilty of that. Sometimes we, we just, we want, it's got to be about me. And God keeps reminding us, it ain't about you, Mark. It's not about you at all. When you came to Saving Faith, it stopped being about you and it started being about everybody else. It started being about your brothers and sisters in Christ. To show honor to them. To put them above yourself. Serving the Lord is not easy. Very often there is opposition to our ministry. Uh, sacrificial service must not only be motivated by love, but also may be maintained by love. I gave this illustration earlier, and I'll do it again today. 
that, you know, it's putting others before yourself and loving sacrificially. And I have no greater example in my life than Jesse Royal. When I met Jesse as a, as a, a young police officer, uh, I was working undercover at the time, had long hair, I'm in church, and, and uh, like everybody does when they first meet Jesse, they don't want anything to do with him. And, uh, but I fell in love with the man, his love for the Lord, his love for his family, his, his love. And there was, I can remember that, I didn't say this in early service, Jesse, but I remember if, I, I have no mechanical skills whatsoever, uh, none, not, not lift a, people used to say, what's in your car? I don't know, an engine, yeah. Don't ask me, I don't know anything that works. So if I would have any kind of problem, I'd say, hey, Jesse, my, I have no water. We lived on Trailwood Drive. We had a shallow well. And, and how many times, Jesse, I don't know how many times, he'd come under my hat. I had metal, I had copper pipes. I was so poor as a policeman back then. had barely had enough food on the table to feed my five kids. And I surely couldn't afford to replace all the plumbing. And Jesse, I'd call him up. It'd be wintertime, pipe bust. And he'd come out there. He'd fix it. My son Sean had to go to, uh, get a ride down to Camp Lejeune. I was leaving. I told him one evening, work day for him the next day. Called him. I uh, said, man, Jesse, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I got to leave at 9 o'clock at night. I got to take Sean back. It's a three-hour drive down there. And I got three hours. He said, pick me up. I'll go with you. Mm-hmm. You see, that man exemplified. And it, he didn't just for me, he didn't do that. As many of you could, that know that story know Jesse. He does that for everybody. It's just not me. And so that's an example of love when it's sacrificial and it's not about him. Also, love could come and service comes and diligence comes in the face of persecution. I recently uh, received, a, uh, from the Voice of the Martyrs, received a um, video. It's a reenactment of a North Korean man who came to Saving Faith. And he starts the story off by telling that when he was in North Korea, uh, being a Christian is outlawed. You go to concentration camps. You're found with a Bible. They take you, your wife, your kids, your grandparents, and throw you in a concentration camp. He was told as a young man that a missionaries will, the Christian missionaries will come. They'll be nice to you, but they'll kill you and eat your liver. And so he believed that. So he's starving. He makes his way over the mountains into China. And he goes into China, and he's picking mushrooms in China in the mountains. And a man comes out and sees him. And he says, hey, I can knows he's North Korean, and he speaks to him in Korean, and he says, I, I, can, I can sell those mushrooms for you. These guys said, this is great. So, the, so he would pick the mushrooms, he'd give it to this man, the man would go into the Chinese village, sell it, give it to him, he'd go back across the, and bring food and be able to survive on his family. And the guy goes, why are you being so nice to me? And he told him he was a pastor. I'm Chinese, I'm a Christian pastor. And, and, he, go, and the, he said, the first thing I thought was, this guy's going to kill me and eat my liver. That's what he said. He said, but he, did, he loved me. And he gave me a Bible. And I took the Bible and I went back and there's a scene where he reenacts and he's showing it to his wife and his wife goes back in horror. What are you doing? Don't you know the consequence for that? And he shows it to his best friend. He comes to Saving Faith. Many come to Saving Faith. And he says, but I hate to tell you this. In 2017, the North Koreans sent two assassins into China and killed Pastor Han. He had led over a thousand North Koreans to Christ. Do you think he was worried about his own self? Do you think Pastor Han was, was worried about, I need me time because I spent the whole weekend at church and I need to sit home and send my wife to church? 
Do you, do you think that he was, he was consumed with that? Or do you think that this man loved the Lord his God so much and he loved people so much that he was investing in the lives no matter what it would cost him? See, love not only inspires us to serve, it encourages and strengthens our perseverance to serve. Love must not be hypocritical, it must be devoted, and we must be diligent. Then we move to hope, verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, preserving in affliction, being devoted to prayer. The power of love is closely related to its constant companions. You know that. Faith and hope. Faith and hope. You see the three together. Here, Paul emphasizes love endurance in the midst of adversity. No matter what you're going through, you still need to love in that manner. The Christian life is not warm and fuzzy. It is a war. You understand that? You, my brothers and sisters, are at war every day that you wake up. Paul always gives us uh, military terms. Stand firm. Put on the full armor of God. Be diligent. It's being prepared for what the enemy will bring at us. And we're not talking about we don't use the, the weapons of, the, of man. We don't take out our, our semi-automatic handguns and our rifles and put body armor on and a Kevlar helmet. We don't do all that and stand there and, and make people come to Christ. No. We put on the full armor of God. We stand firm in the gap. We stand shield to shield with our Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've ever seen one of those Roman movies where the legionnaires, that's a perfect illustration of the way we should be facing the enemy with our shields of faith out and our sword, the word of God, be ready to be used. We need to get away from thinking that when we're Christians that somehow everything is going to be perfect because it's not. Love must be able to handle the hard times when, which are sure to come. Kathy and I were talking again about the people in our church who are suffering severe illnesses. And we, and we, and, and we look at that and we say, you know, I, I, I try to remind Kathy, I said, it's not unique just to hear the Grace Harvest. It's a reminder that our bodies are decaying. When sin entered the world, we started, when we were born, we started to die. God turned that hourglass over in your life. You don't know when that day will come. For some of the young people in here, I hope it's 80 or 90 years from now. I, I look at my life and the people are my age. We're in the winter of our life. We're in that last lap. God ain't giving us another 50 years, folks. <laughs> Not going to do it. And I, would, <laughs> and, I, and I wouldn't want it. I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't want it. My hope is in Christ. And my prayer is that he used me up for his glory until the day he calls me home. I want to be used by him because too many days I've wasted just like I did Tuesday night. We all have to fight that flesh. We've got to re be reminded of the hope that's in us. We live in a fallen world. We know that the fallen world brings suffering and groanings. We have been so blessed to live in a country like America. So blessed. If you've ever been to a third world country, it, 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 you can't even compare to what goes on here. The poorest person here is filthy rich compared to the people I met in Uganda. But you know what? Most people had hope. The Christian brothers and sisters that I met, they had hope. Because we love God, the world will hate us. And so the hope that God gives us, the world despises. 
We know that living in this following world brings that suffering that comes. Paul has spoken of this in chapters 5 and 8 of the book of Romans. And I want to notice something in both 5 and 8. Love is prominent in both of those chapters. Perseverance in tribulation is, is accomplished by rejoicing in hope. How do we get through the things we get through? I was visiting with a, Ken and I were visiting with a couple from our church. And since we're live, I'm not going to mention their name. We're visiting with them. And they're going through one of these valleys and tribulations in their life, health-wise. And you would have thought I was the one that needed uplifting. I left that place. I was on top of the world. To see that man and that woman's response to what they're going through, it's, I only hope I can act like that. To see the suffering, physical suffering, and yet giving God the glory for even the suffering. So the world can't do that. The world can't do that. You've heard Kathy and I say, and we mean it from the bottom of my heart, I thank God for Kathy's Parkinson's. How can I say that? Because my love for my wife has increased. My faith and my love for my God has even increased in the midst of our valley and trial that we're walking through. See, God puts us in there. He, he puts us in those valleys in our life to get us away from the stuff that doesn't matter. He puts those in our lives so we'll grow in Him and our faith will mature in Him. And that we will love and serve our brothers and sisters Christ in hope. In Romans 5, starting at verse 3. And now only this. But we also boast in our afflictions. See, there's nothing special about your pastor. That should be every one of us. We boast in our afflictions because it brings about perseverance. And perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Glory! He continues with that thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction. Now stop right there. This is Paul writing this. Momentary light affliction. I hate to think what he would think was tough affliction. He was whipped five times with 39 lashes. He was beat with rods three times. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bit. He was left dead, stoned, and left for dead. Those are light afflictions. Wow, puts my... Uh, Self-pity to shame, doesn't it? And he says, for our momentary, light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, the world, but are the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. Everything we see today is temporal. Every one of us will be gone from here. Every one of us. In 100 years, there's not going to be a person in this room. Maybe a baby in here may live to be 100, but for the most part, all of us are going to be gone. It's, it's what, what, is, what matters, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our hope should be in Christ. Our hope should be the anticipation of being with Him one day. Yes, enjoy this life. I'm not, I'm not telling you not to enjoy this life. But is your enjoyment in line with the perfect will of God? Is your enjoyment in line with having a transformed mind and living a Romans 12 life? Or is it all about 
what you want. Is it all about eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. That's the, that's the world thinks. My, my, my generation especially, and, and, and the newer generation, you're not immune to it. People that I grew up idolizing, rock stars, uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, lead singer for The Doors. You, you, all these people, you, they died of drug overdoses. One of them died on their own vomit. How, how does that happen? You, you look at these people and you go, man, I wish I was them. Oh, thank the Lord I wasn't like them. But yet when you're young, you look at people like that and you think, that's what I want to aspire to. I want to be rich. I want to have fame. Which is all temporal and leads to nothing. There is a difference between Christian love and the love for this world. And the ungodly mind reasons to himself, it's just today. I'll live for today. Christian, you may think God is far from you in times of adversity, but I'm here to tell you he is not. He is there with you. Cling to that hope. Cling to the hope, the valleys that you're walking through, knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. How do I know that? The writer of Hebrews says this. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What, what say you, Christian? Do you believe that promise? There it is. It's a promise written in the book of Hebrews to us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. My God is the creator of heaven and earth. He told the mountains how, I, how high to be. He told the oceans where to stop. He gave me breath. He called me to be his man. That's very hour to speak to you his truth. I am not fearful of what man can do to me. We need to understand that the hope we have comes through Christ. And then finally we moved. We should not be hypocritical. We must be devoted. We must be diligent. We must have hope, and we must be hospitable. Contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, verse 13. Again, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but back, do you all remember, folks my age and around my age, you remember back in the 70s and 60s, 70s, you may have gone to a Sunday drive with your parents, just get in the car and just drive around. Kathy used to do that with her family. I thought it was weird. I was a military family. We didn't do that. He'd drive around, you know. they just drive around. I said, what would you do? He said, well, we'd just drive till we went to somebody's house. What? Well, you remember those days when, when, when uh, and I saw a comedian, a Christian comedian was talking about this. He said, 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 you remember back in the 70s and 60s, 70s, you, 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 about 7 o'clock on a summer evening, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, you see a car pull up, and you go, oh, it's Kathy and Mark. It's the kids. Oh, great. The kids inside the house. Oh, we want to go out and play. This will be fun. The woman in the house, she's running in the fridge trying to find some dessert to bring out. The husband is standing on the door. Come on in, guys. Oh, no, you're not bothering us. Come on in. Come on in. Fast forward to 2022. Somebody pulls in your driveway at 7 o'clock at night. You pull the blinds. Turn the lights out. <laughs> Shh, everybody be quiet. Don't leave. It's Pastor Mark and Kathy. <laughs> it's funny, but it's, see how our culture has changed? We're to be hospitable, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. We see an open hostility towards Christians, and it's getting worse, and it will continue to get worse. 
And hard times, love toward the brethren will be needed more and even more. By, by this love, others will know we are Christians, right? There may come a time when the church has to meet in secret. They've locked up your pastor. They locked up your elders. Now your home groups are meeting in basements and barns and living rooms with the drapes pulled, pulling out copies of the Bible. Because the world has said what you believe in is hate speech and we will not tolerate it. Just think how much hospitality is going to be needed in those times. We need to be practicing it now. I say to people all the time when, when, they, when they come to me and they go, Pastor, I'm just struggling to make relationships in the, here in the church. I say, okay, tell me last time that you invited a couple over to your house for dinner. Ooh, well, uh, I don't know them that well. Well, how are you going to get to know them? And it don't take much, let me tell you what. How much does a pack of hot dogs cost? And a pack of buns. And you come home and say, hey guys, let's have a, let's have a little cookout. Roast, we'll roast hot dogs over, over fire. And we'll sit down and we'll have some, have some fellowship. Folks, it doesn't take much. Have somebody over for some dessert. Have some time where we're, we're not running home and running in front of a TV set and plopping down and saying, it's me time. It's devoting, it's being hospitable to one another. It's loving on one another. Yeah, it's, it can be uncomfortable. And some of you, well, you don't know me, Pastor. I, I like my space. Well, you know what? Your pastor used to love his space, too. You've heard me say it before. If there were three people in a room, you wouldn't hear me talk. And when we would do things at Swift Creek, when I was working undercover and everything, I was like, Kathy, we're not going. We're not going to these things. We're going, and then we'd finally go. And what would always happen? I'd be standing over in the corner, and all cops know what this happens. You stand in the corner, and people want to come over and have a conversation with you. Did you write me a ticket? <laughs> oh, I, are, you, are, you, are you a state or Chesterfield? Oh, you're Chesterfield. Oh, okay. Do you know so-and-so? He's such a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that made me want to be around a bunch of Christians. Well, I got over myself because I realized it was all self-centered and selfish. You can handle those situations real easy. No, I don't know that jerk. <laughs> But my name's Mark Wells. We're new, to, we're new to Swift Creek. What's going on? You see, we all as Christians can do a better job of loving on each other and being hospitable to each other. See, times today, they're not like when we grew up, folks. Like he, he, young people, you, you just you can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend what it was like. And I get it. You're thinking, man, Pastor, you're old. Would you quit saying that? But what I'm trying to tell you, you live in perilous times. We live, moms and dads, we live in perilous times. And who will protect your children? It's not the government's going to protect them. It's you that's going to protect them. It's you that are going to let them abhor evil. It's you that's going to cling to good. It's you that's going to be fervent in your prayer life. It's going to be you who are diligent. It's going to be you that are hospitable. How will they know how to do these things if you're not there to lead them by example? All of us can do a better job, every one of us, including your pastor. So I close with this. The hospitality which Paul calls for here is hospitality to the brethren. 
We are encouraged to invite everyone and everyone into our homes as a brother in Christ. And we should not hesitate, though, I want to give you this caveat. I didn't say this in the early service. Be discerning, though. Be discerning on who you let in your home. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Our love must not be hypocritical. It must be devoted. It must be diligent. It must hope. And it must be hospitable. In two weeks, we will conclude with our series in Romans. On the first Sunday of January, we'll, we'll conclude with living this transformed life as we continue to see what it means to live as a Romans 12 Christian. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Folks, I, I, I pray that, that God is working in your life when it comes to this passage today, as He did mine, as He does every time I study this passage. Folks, we can do such a better job of living for Christ than we do now. And my prayer for you, fathers, is that you commit yourself unto the Lord to be a Romans 12 father, a Romans 12 Christian, a Romans 12 husband. Teach your children to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. If they don't learn it from you, who are they going to learn it from? Mommies, I, I, I pray that you too would have a desire to be a Romans 12 wife, a Romans 12 mother, a Romans 12 grandmother, a Romans 12 Christian woman. You may not be married. My prayer is that, that, that you have that love all of us have, should have for one another. I pray that we learn not to think so highly of ourselves and to put others before ourselves. In just a moment, I'll be standing in front of you as your shepherd. But God is the one working in your life. And this is a time of invitation. And what do we mean by that here at Grace Harvest? We're just not here to manipulate anybody. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in you. God has called you to be His. The Bible tells us that we're ashamed of Him. He'll be ashamed of us. It means that we're not His. So you come to saving faith, we make that public profession. If you've come to saving faith in Christ and you've never made that profession public, I pray that you do that this, this very hour. God has called you to be a member here at Grace Harvest and to, to join this body of fellowship, this local body, to be a Romans 12 Christian in this body. I pray that you come grab this preacher by the hand and, and tell him that this is the place that God has brought you and your family to be a member. Some of you have never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. It's the first thing that God asks us to do, commands us to do. Believe, repent, believe, and be baptized. It's not an act of salvation, but it's an act of obedience. And then, Christian, I'll ask you, when I gave that illustration at the beginning of the service, is this a salvation thing? Is that what you say to God? Is that what you say to God when God calls you to do things, to be obedient to His Word? I pray this morning that you get yourself straight with Him. I'll be up front to pray with you as the Lord leads. Father, I pray that you receive the glory for the proclamation of your word this day. I pray, Father, that it was an encouragement to those that need to be encouraged today. 
I pray, Father, it brought correction as you brought in my life this week with this passage. I pray that it brings comfort, Lord, and peace in the hope that passes all understanding. I ask this in the precious name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You come as the Lord leads us. Pastor Cal leads us. Let's all stand and sing. Oh.